You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We're going to talk all about the policy prescriptions of the Biden administration. We're not going to hear any more about Operation Warp Speed. They're going to be calling it the COVID response. We're talking right now about 2024 jockeying amongst Republicans. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? The House has been voting for this stimulus package basically for months. Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Robin Hood gets ready to come to Washington. We've got the testimony ahead of tomorrow's bombshell hearing before the House of Representatives. And an exclusive conversation, you really don't want to miss those, with former chief of staff to none other than Donald Trump. Mick Mulvaney joins me. You don't want to miss that conversation. We've got an all-star show, plus the latest on what's going on in Texas, how it's influencing the mar- uh, the energy markets, and what it means for folks finally getting the power turned back on. Local reports suggest they might have to wait until next week. We begin tonight with dueling uh, stories that have the attention of the Biden administration and have upended the policy discourse here in the nation's capital. None other than, of course, the COVID-19 situation and the situation down in Texas with folks losing power. President Biden told a CNN town hall last night that he estimates every American will be able to get their COVID-19 vaccine by the end of July. I've got sounds on this. Let's take a listen. By next Christmas, I think we'll be in a very different circumstance, God willing, than we are today. It's an important nuance to know that the White House, for many ways, was playing defense today on the communications front as they tried to make their message known as to whether or not teachers need to be vaccinated, as the CDC guidelines have suggested, before schools reopen. This, as the Biden administration says, that they are determined to get an increasing number of schools to be reopened. Jen Psaki spoke at the White House briefing earlier today and noted about an ever-changing timeline for the expected return to normalcy. I've got sound on the extended timeline. Take a listen. Vaccine hesitancy remains a challenge. Uh, We need to ensure that uh, that everybody who uh, can get a dose is getting a dose. The president uh, wants things to return to normal, as we all do, uh, but we, uh, we, we don't know at this point what that timeline is going to look like. 
the timeline is murky, and it's particularly frustrating for Texans, where FEMA is sending water and blankets to Texas and other parts of the south-central United States, where people are freezing at homes without power. And this is after back-to-back -back winter storms, and they're getting the blame for widespread utility outages at the request of state officials. That announcement from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, again, more sound on the situation down in Texas. Take a listen. We remain in close contact with states across the affected area to ensure any federal support requirements are met. FEMA has supplied generators to Texas and is preparing to move diesel into the state to ensure the continued availability of backup power. I want to bring into the conversation Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Michael Hardaway, a political strategist and founder of Hardaway Wire. He is the former spokesman to uh, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, both of these, uh, our panelists tonight, are consummate Washington uh, insiders, and I'm, I'm thrilled to have them on for the panel. All right. I mean, Rick, I, I got to start with you here. It, it seems that there's a different tone in, in Washington, and, and not just in terms of the messaging, but in terms of the pressure now that the Biden administration is facing as there's a mounting crisis happening in Texas and this severe questions about vaccination distribution. Yeah, I think the two combine in, in a pretty uh, uh, impactful way. Uh, what you just described to uh, the listeners was a situation in Texas where, you know, people's basic life needs are, are barely being met. If, if, if are, there are over uh, two dozen dead already. This is an emergency situation. And you can only imagine the stress that that then puts on the vaccine effort where Texas is, you know, such a huge state with 254 counties, all of which were trying to vaccinate uh, COVID uh, uh, patients or, you know, potential COVID patients. And, and so I, I think it creates an urgency there that we haven't seen throughout this COVID year. I mean, you know, it was a, a, a weather event totally out of the control of the, the, the people in Texas who were managing things like the power grid, but, but they're, they're dealing with it in a way that I think um, uh, you know, is really going to draw a lot of scrutiny over the next couple of weeks. You know, there's a red headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal just within the last minute. Texas bans natural gas companies from taking fuel out of state. Again, a remarkable red headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal just within the last several minutes. Texas has banned natural gas companies from taking fuel out of the state. Our producer, uh, Matt Shirley, providing some important context from the Texas Tribune, uh, which notes that natural gas extraction has all but stopped. A massive development on this evolving story. And again, folks, I mean, in journalism, we try not to conflate the stories, but here from the nation's capital, it is a dueling. Uh, one-two political punch in terms of the COVID crisis now with the Texas crisis. Uh, Texas largely relies on natural gas for power. It wasn't ready for the extreme cold. That's the headline today from Aaron Douglas's reporting in the Texas Tribune. Michael Hardaway, come in here about how this energy crisis down in Texas combined with the pandemic, the humanitarian impacts, how all of this is just a, a, an unfortunate, perfect storm of catastrophe. Joe Biden has walked into this morass of chaos with the mounting deaths from COVID and the lack of infrastructure for a vaccine distribution, along with this new horrific crisis in Texas. I think the good thing for him is that he has a chief of staff who is a consummate expert at handling these things and Ron Klain, who was a critical part of the Obama administration's Ebola response. I think that he is someone who understands 
from an infrastructure perspective how to address these matters. And so I think that we are in good hands in terms of how to fix this. This afternoon, FEMA has declared uh, an emergency situation in Texas, and the administration has been sending generators and diesel fuel and blankets and that sort of thing to Texas. And so I think we're starting to become on the path to fix that situation, but make no mistake about it, uh, this is a massive crisis that the president has on his hands. I, I was really struck, folks, so pay attention to this. I was struck by this because, if I, I mean, we've all lost power at one point or another in our lives, but the this reporting in the Bloomberg Terminal, I mean, get ready. The crisis that has knocked out power for days to millions of homes and businesses in Texas and across the central U.S. is getting worse, with blackouts expected to last until at least – Thursday, Texas's grid operator cut power to 2.8 million homes Wednesday, Rick, and just hours after restoring service to 700,000 households. I mean, and then in the Texas Tribune, it says, by some estimates, nearly half of the state's natural gas production has screeched to a halt due to the extremely low temperatures. I mean, if this doesn't if this doesn't illustrate America's blind spot in terms of energy infrastructure, I don't know. I, I don't want to know what will, Rick Davis. Yeah, I think this will uh, really energize those people on Capitol Hill who have for a long time been preaching a better infrastructure, especially with an electric power grid. And And I think it's really important for listeners to note that one of the drivers around this uh, ban on export of natural gas is that the pipelines that move natural gas require a certain amount of tonnage to go through them. If it drops below that, all the gas stops flowing. And so Texas has done the analysis and they are, they are close to losing the pressure in their pipeline, one of the most extensive gas pipelines in the world. And, and it's just because they're using so much, as you described, Kevin, so much of this gas to, to be able to fuel the power needs and the, and the heat that, uh, that they can no longer now afford on a humanitarian basis to have any of that gas leave the, leave the state. Imagine, imagine just for a second, folks, if you're not in Texas, not having power for a week in the middle of a pandemic. Imagine being laid off and not having power for a week in the middle of a pandemic, no internet, no way to get your job resume out there. I mean, this, this is, it, it's, it's, and, and, and freezing cold temperatures on top of that. I mean, it's, it's really cascading is the right word for it. Uh, reading from my colleagues reporting on the terminal, get this Michael Hardaway, U S oil production has plunged by nearly 40%. Again, I got, I got to, I got to ask you the question, Michael Hardaway, you know, this, you know, the, the democratic caucus better than anyone I, 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 talk to an interview, there are going to be centrist Democrats who are going to say, you know what, enough talk of the rescinding of, of uh, some Trump era uh, executive orders on the environment, and we got to get more talk about energy infrastructure. I think you absolutely have to do that, but I would argue we have an opportunity in that the conversation about a nationwide infrastructure plan has already begun, and so perhaps this is an opportunity to have a smarter infrastructure plan that has bipartisan buy-in. And it's a real opportunity to have a conversation about the marriage between clean energy and oil and gas and the fact that the two should coexist. And, you know, if you look at Texas specifically, the real issue here is that Texas was the perfect storm and that it is the only state in the union that uses its own independent power grid. 
And and so this has happened in part because there's been no real oversight in terms of making sure that their power grid was prepared for a cold weather storm such as what we have encountered. And I think that the overall narrative here is that this is an opportunity to do this the right way when, you know, perhaps without this crisis, perhaps without um, the COVID crisis and others, we may have gone about this the old way, the same way, which was not the smart way. And so maybe this will be better. Hardaway stays, Rick Davis stays. Uh, This stat jumping out at me. I've got the chart on my terminal. Crude output has plunged by 4 million barrels a day. That's the most ever, according to traders and industry executives with direct knowledge of the operations. The most ever. Plus a million people without power in Mexico. I'm Kevin Cerulli. Much more coming up next. Nick Mulvaney's going to join me. Don't miss it. This is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. (laughs) My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We've got Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis with us and Michael Hardaway. I was looking at a text message from my dad from the other the other day, and uh, it's Ash Wednesday if you're Catholic. And you know, I'm being doing the whole socially distant thing. You know, holding my breath, wearing my double masks, washing my hands, trying not to touch my face. You get it. So. Uh, Uh, My dad's been streaming mass. He sends me a text and he goes, you know, I'm getting the hang of this streaming mass thing. I fast forward (laughs) through all of the songs. I said, hey, whatever gives. That's the difference between Kevin Cirilli and his father. I would fast forward through the readings to hear the music. He'll fast forward through the uh, through the through the music to to get the readings. Anyway, let's talk stimulus. Mick Mulvaney's coming up. Um, Stimulus front last night in a CNN town hall hosted by Anderson Cooper. President Joe Biden outlined his COVID relief plan before a live audience uh, in Milwaukee. And and Biden says he wants nearly $2 trillion, as we know, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan to go through. But some people there were still feeling uh, nervous, nervousness about about the price. And I was struck, and we're going to go in in the weeds here. I was struck by what President Biden had to say about raising the minimum wage. We know he wants it in the current proposal to be $15 an hour. Take a listen to the sound on tape from this. And here's the sound on the minimum wage from President Biden last night in Milwaukee. Here he is. No one should work 40 hours a week and live in poverty. No one should work 40 hours a week and live in poverty. But... It's totally legitimate for small business owners to be concerned about how that changes. It's the last line, Rick Davis, that really caught my attention because he went on to talk about raising the minimum wage over the next couple of years, not immediately, over the next couple of years to 12 or 13 dollars an hour, up from the current uh, seven uh, and a quarter that it's at right now. 12 and 13 dollars an hour by 2022, 2024 is very different than an immediate 15 dollar hike. Clearly, 
Main Street America is 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 their message is getting through to the White House about an immediate raise, what that would do to small businesses, Rick Davis. Yeah, and I think it's probably getting through to Nancy Pelosi, who's shepherding this <laughs> bill through her Congress and due to get a vote on next week. And, and here's the president of the United States throwing his own policy under the bus. Uh, I think he's realizing that uh, it's the weakest part of the program. Uh, he's got two senators from his own party, Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin in the, in the, House, in the Senate, uh, both who've said they're not for a $15 minimum wage. Uh, without them, he's got no chance uh, of passage. So I think it's the the practical political reality has come home to the White House, and he's basically laying the groundwork for not a loss but a retrade. I got to get out my glasses for this because I, you know, I, my eyesight because of all the screen time. So bear with me, folks. All right, here it is. I got the transcript. Michael Hardaway, who's with us, who worked used to work for Hakeem Jeffries, uh, who's in leadership in the Democratic caucus. Increase, direct quote from Biden, increase the minimum wage from $7.25 an hour between now and the year 2025 to $12 an hour to $13 an hour. You double someone's pay and the impact on business would be absolutely minimal and it would grow GDP. You know these negotiations, Michael Hardaway. Did he just kind of say, all right, I, I hear you. We might not be able to get the 15, but maybe 12 and 13 over a couple of years time. Joe Biden is standing in the middle and he's getting pulled on one side and pulled on the other. What he's saying is let's go about this in a smart way. I think the progressive wing of the caucus uh, would say, we want $15 tomorrow. That's not reasonable for most small business owners. And I think the slow no, escalation not. that Joe Biden is advocating here is a smarter way to go. And to be perfectly honest with you, I think most people would say that $7 an hour is insufficient for a minimum wage in 2021, especially when you've had a skyrocket in productivity over the past 40 years or so, and wages have not kept pace with that. And so I think Joe Biden's way is the smart way, and it will get done. I think progressives have to relax and trust him and allow him to steer that ship. I would say that Nancy Pelosi right now is probably getting calls from the progressive wing of our caucus wanting this to get done tomorrow, uh, but that's just not a reasonable way to go about it. You know, and I, I, coming up, and Mick Mulvaney joins us, we're going to ask him about this. I thought Heather Long in the Washington Post really had an important piece that headlines, millions of jobs probably aren't coming back even after the pandemic ends. And she goes on to report, millions of jobs, mostly low-skilled jobs, likely won't come back even after the pandemic ends. The U.S. needs to invest heavily in retraining, economists say, Yet the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill has $0 that are being allocated for retraining. Just quickly, Rick Davis, retraining and transitioning uh, folks uh, to new types of sectors is just absolutely crucial. I agree with Heather in the Washington Post. I don't think that there's enough policymakers talking about this with the stimulus. Kevin, you're right. I think we keep having the debate over the economy we had two years ago, not the economy we have today. And especially not with these jobs numbers that are actually getting worse rather than getting better right now. Sectors like hospitality, food and beverage, things like that, uh, it, it, it may never come back. Airlines. And so the question is, what do those people do? I mean, they're not all going to go looking for jobs for $15 an hour. Yeah. McKinsey has a report on that. All right. Mick Mulvaney coming up next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. Thank you. 
can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 11.30, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. Murata tells me Mick Mulvaney's on the line. I'm accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. Uh, and, and we're thrilled to welcome back to the program someone who I've covered now for close to a decade, the pr- former president, Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. Uh, Mick, what have you been up to since uh, the post-Trump era has begun? Uh, hey, Kevin, mostly regretting the fact that when I started the Bitcoin caucus in Congress in 2011, <laughs> and it was $200, that I didn't buy any. Um, I was fascinated <laughs> by it and got into it and followed it ever since, but didn't actually buy any because I thought it would be inappropriate to do that and then start a caucus. So I remember uh, asking yeah. you in the halls of Rayburn, trying to explain to me what is Bitcoin, and don't tell my boss, but I'm still kind of confused as to what a Bitcoin is. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's it's fine. We're some down in South Carolina, a good bit. Um, have been dabbling in a couple of things. Still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Started a uh, hedge fund with a buddy of mine, uh, focusing on financial services. We still think that uh, most folks, and you know this, Kevin, as well as anybody, people think they understand Washington, but until you've lived it and been there for a while, it, it's not like any other thing. And you can't sit in New York or sit in Los Angeles or sit in London and understand Washington, D.C. And as the government gets bigger and bigger and regulations um, grow, as they are invariably going to do under the, uh, the uh, Biden administration, that it, uh, you know, it might create opportunities for investment. So we'll see. I always tell people it's like alphabet soup down here. The CFPB, which you led at one point, much to Senator Elizabeth Warren's uh, d- uh, dismay, um, and the CFPB, the FTC, the CFTC. You know, it's like your head'll spin it's when you when you try to get acclimated to the to the the lay of the land. All right, I got to ask you about this because uh, former President Trump actually gave his first interview today to Fox News. He called into Fox News uh, uh, to to. Uh, uh, acknowledge the passing of Rush Limbaugh. Take a listen to what he said. Here's the sound on it. Rush is irreplaceable, unique. Uh, He had an audience that was massive. He was a fantastic man, a fantastic talent. And uh, people, whether they loved him or not, they respected him. It's interesting to to just follow the the past 48 hours of the Republican Party, a, a view of which are an important part in it. Uh, you've got McConnell versus Trump and the uh, the search for an identity. Uh, you know how the media frames it. So, I mean, how sh- what should Trump do next as we head into the midterms and head into a new cycle? Um, a couple of different things. That's the first time I did not see the president was on TV today. I wasn't aware he was going to be on there. I don't know if it was pre-scheduled because, you know, we didn't, ex- I think. No, Rush, it wasn't. Rush- yeah. Passing was sort of unex- not unexpected, but didn't know it was going to happen today. Uh, by the way, what you just heard, Kevin, is is real and sincere. Um, the president had a real affinity for Rush Limbaugh. Um, I've played golf with a gentleman, uh, with both of them together many times, and the president really, really liked Rush. Um, and the Rush liked the president. They got along great. They, you know, they, they love politics and they love media and they love golf. So. Um, there was a real affinity between those two guys. It was, it's nice to listen to the president uh, talk like that because not everybody always got a chance to see that side of the president. He was, 
that that is a sincere uh, a sincere type of emotion that uh, you don't get a chance to see oftentimes when you go to a rally or something like that. So I'm glad to see. Well, and it's it's a very different tone. It's a very different tone than the than the than the statement yeah. he released yesterday about Mitch McConnell. So you asked me a question: Is what does he need to do more of more of that? Because um, that's uh, again, I'm just listening to it for the first time. But that's the president that I knew. Uh, you know, certainly with the beat up on McConnell stuff. That we that, that's the president as well. There's no question about it. But I, and I think everybody recognizes that. I don't think enough people recognize that uh, what they saw today or what you just heard from President Trump about Rush Limbaugh uh, is the president uh, as well. Hey, make this Rick Davis. I, I do want to take the opportunity to follow up, though, on a point that Kevin just made about there's another guy who uh, got some treatment by Donald Trump yesterday. And you're right. Yeah. I mean, if it could only all be like today, we'd, we'd, we'd be great. But uh, his other close partner uh, who doesn't play golf, uh, uh, but who passed a historic number of uh, conservative judges into the uh, judiciary all around the country, uh, an incredible legacy for both gentlemen. Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump have a feud going on, and uh, I'm curious how you see that shaping the party. I mean, is this going to play out in 2022 primaries? Um, let's look at it this way. I, I put, I'll put my Republican partisan hat on. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in an administration anymore. I'm not elected. I'm a private citizen. But let me put my Republican hat on here for a second. I think one of the things that I hope that we've learned out of the 2020 election um, was that uh, politics is a game of of addition, not subtraction. What do I mean by that? There's a really good chance that we lost Arizona because of the personal vendetta against John McCain. I'm not sure what we gained by that, but I'm pretty sure what we lost by that. Um, Fast forward to today, I'm not sure what what the president gains um, and what the party gains by, by attacking um, Mitch McConnell. I understand what he might lose. There might be folks who like Mitch McConnell who now are going to wonder, wait a second, should, do I have to pick between Mitch McConnell and the president? Um, and that doesn't add anybody to, to the base. It doesn't add anybody to the president's side of the ledger. It doesn't add anybody to the Republican side of the ledger. Um, so listen, I get it. And uh, with the president, the president, you know, he, he always used to tell me when I I give him advice like this. He'd look, he'd raise his eyebrow and say, "So tell me, Mick, have you been elected president of the United States?" I'm like, no, Mr. President, I have not. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's a good card he, to play. <laughs> he, got where, he, he got where he is being himself. Um, but you know, maybe we look back at the examples of such things as Arizona and ask ourselves, okay, um, how do we uh, how do we vent our frustrations and 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 have family discussions about things we disagree with without turning people off. Well, listen, I got to be honest here, and, I, and we are going to get to policy, but, but, but I, I spoke to a, a previous administration official uh, earlier today uh, from the Trump administration, and, and, you know, the source asked me not to use the name, and, you know, I, you can roll your eyes at that if you're listening. I get it. But then I spoke to another source who had, who's been talking to the president throughout this down in Mar-a-Lago, and both of these people are telling me that he has his eye on the California, uh, a potential California runoff. And the RNC has already poured something like uh, a quarter of a million dollars into uh, a recall for Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, you know, Mick, you know all of the players here. You know uh, the current uh, RNC makeup and, and where the RNC is at right now. I, I mean, is this something that is openly being discussed, or is this just a long-shot Republican fantasy, the way that Democrats try to get Texas? But do Republicans actually have a shot at taking taking the governorship back uh, from California? 
Um, by the way, I, when you started saying that, I was thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, are you telling me that Donald Trump is thinking about running for governor of California? <laughs> That's what that I thought. I was fantastic. about ready to hit the panic button. <laughs> that, that would be fantastic, by the way. Um, and I wonder how long it takes to establish. He owns a home uh, out there. He owns a piece of property, so I, I don't know. But let's assume for a second we're not talking about Donald Trump running for governor we're not. of California. We're not. Which is we're not. fascinating, by the way. So let's say Rick Grinnell, for example, a yeah. friend of mine, yep. good supporter of the president's, was our ambassador to Germany and then our uh, uh, acting uh, director national, uh, of uh, national intelligence. Uh, great candidate. I think one of the things, I think the, the conventional wisdom was that Newsom was weak and he might be recalled, but that he might retain the governorship after the recall because there was no Republican to sort of rally around. Remember, the ballot out there is, is, two, is two questions on one ballot. Should you recall Newsom on, in question one? And then if so, who would you vote for in number two? So it's all done at the same time. Um, and the reason that the Republicans were able to steal this election away or that governorship away from uh, Gray Davis, uh, you know, 10 years ago or so, was because they had a, a big name. They had, they had Arnold Schwarzenegger as a Republican on, um, on, on, on that long list. We don't have that right now. If Rick Grinnell gets in, you might have it, because not only is Rick formidable in his own right, credible in his own right, he would absolutely bring the, the full backing of Donald Trump into that race, and that would be fascinating. This is how I know I'm a political junkie, talking to two political junkies, because you've got Peter Thiel out there, you've got the water emissions scandal, the water emission, water issue, emissions issue, big tech I mean, it's in California politics. I mean, I, I'm telling you, folks, that is the story to watch if those signatures go through. And we'll know in about three weeks whether or not there's going to be a, a recall effort in uh, California. All right. Let me ask you about the stimulus, uh, Mick Mulvaney, because you are one of the founding members of the House Freedom Caucus. And um, you were a member of the House Financial Services Committee. You were uh, a political wonk, as I recall, back in your days in Congress. Uh, and $1.9 trillion. And now they're talking about infrastructure spending. Is that too much money? Can we afford it? Yeah, and you forgot OMB director, which is really what OMB, yeah. OMB yeah. and CFPB. Go ahead, yeah, Nick. I'm yeah, sorry, you, your you, resume's you, too long. You, you, <laughs> uh, no, but you don't. You don't get. You don't get to be the budget director by wanting to spend money. I mean, that's like that is the, the position that people. You know, you get you put get put in that position so you can say no to people. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, well, let me show, answer your question. Is it too much money? The, the better answer, my gut instinct is yes, it is too much. But the real answer, I think, if I'm being honest with myself, is no one knows. No one knows. We have we have moved well beyond all of the the economic forecasting models. Anybody who tells you, you know, that they know what's going to happen, are just guessing at this point. The debt numbers are so huge, both in terms of the raw dollars and the percentage of GDP, the percentage of the overall economy, the percentage of national income, for example. Um, we are really engaging in a, an experiment with our our economy and with the world economy. I do wish. There was some more caution uh, and some more sort of conservative with a small c approach to this. Uh, keep in mind that I don't think all the money from the first stimulus package has been spent yet. Um, it, it may be, but as of a couple of weeks ago or months ago, it was not. So, I mean, we don't have any idea what all this is doing. I do know this is that if I had a dime for every time I had a Democrat tell me how many jobs they could create by government spending, um, I, I could pay off the debt. I heard that Joe Biden was saying today that $2 trillion would create 7 million jobs. By the way, the return on that is not very good if you do the math. Um, but it's this urgency to spend money that I just don't get. And I think what it is, it's not economics. It goes back to Rahm Emanuel's 
uh, don't let a crisis go to waste. These are this is most of this money is not going to be stimulus money. Most of this money is going to be money to Democrat causes. Um, they're paying their political debts and they're using COVID as an excuse to do it. Certainly, some of the money will get to folks who need it. But my guess is a year on from now, you'll be hearing story after story after story about the next Solyndra and the next fraud and all of the money that went to all of these huge Democrat operations. So, uh, but that's Washington. That's politics. Um, there are no fiscal conservatives left for the most part in Washington, D.C., or at least not nearly enough to change a vote. Um, so we're going to continue down this experiment together. Mick, if, if I was interviewing Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, you know, here, here's a question that I would ask her, and, and I'll ask this to you. Uh, Heather Long in the Washington Post has, uh, I mentioned this earlier in the program, has a brilliant article. It's headlined, Millions of Jobs Probably Aren't Coming Back Even After the Pandemic Ends. And she actually quotes uh, from the fourth quarter of last year, uh, Fed Chairman Jay Powell saying, the economy is going to, to come back, I'm paraphrasing, but it's coming back in a different location, and it's going to be a different type of economy. Uh, Heather Long reports in the Post, millions of jobs, mostly low-skilled, likely won't come back even after the pandemic ends. The U.S. needs to invest heavily in retraining, economists say, yet the $1.9 trillion bill has $0 for retraining. I mean, as we talk about the gig economy and, you know, the, the, the startups out in Silicon Valley who have made it easier for there to be a biz, online businesses uh, and small businesses. Front page of the Wall Street Journal today shows the chart skyrocketing American hustle of small businesses really uh, increasing during this uh, uh, in the last couple of months. I mean, shouldn't we don't we owe it to, to the American people to be honest with them that all this money that we're going to pass in terms of stimulus is really just a band a band-aid on a bullet hole. Um, you know, there's a, a bunch of a bunch of things in there, Kevin. Um, first things first. What's the, what's the question that I would ask Janet Yellen? Um, it is a question I don't think anybody's asked yet. Which is, who does inflation hurt more? Uh, does it hurt the poor more? Does it hurt the rich more? Uh, the answer, by the way, and she knows the answer, is that it hurts the poor more. It hurts the elderly more. It hurts the folks that they all the Democrats say they are wanting to help. Um, and as they, we move towards this, 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 this uh, threat risk of inflation hanging over the economy, no one is talking about who is going to pay the price for that. The inflation is a tax on the middle class and the lower class, and everybody's afraid to talk about it because the Fed knows that it's coming, and they're afraid to do anything about it because they can't be against the politics of uh, spending money to, to to boost COVID, um, you know, listen. There's a lot of things we could say about 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 small business. It, it, it's it's so. It's, I've started two of them now. We're starting our hedge fund without an office. It, it's great now. It's, it's it's a tremendous time to be uh, have this this opportunity in small business because it's so much cheaper to start a business right now. So it doesn't surprise me. Uh, but to your larger point about jobs not coming back, look, my Democrat friends are famous for telling us how jobs don't come back. I mean, Obama spent you know, four years saying that you know manufacturing jobs weren't going to come back, and they did under Donald Trump, simply because the policies changed. So, I, no, I don't agree that those, those low-skilled jobs necessarily go away. If they go away, they'll go away for the right reasons, which is because folks found better things to do. But I think it's wrong to be able to say, well, the government's going to decide which, which jobs are going to go away, and therefore we need to retrain people to where we think the next jobs are going to be. Don't forget, guys, and I know I'm talking long and I apologize. We're the lowest. It's rate. radio. It's radio. Yeah, <laughs> we can do that. No sound bites. Go ahead. Yeah. The lowest rates of unemployment across the board 
record lowest rates for black Americans, uh, women, you name it, okay? And we had it without inflation because of the supply-side economics of the previous administration. We know how to do this. I heard a story today that, that, uh, that uh, the Federal Reserve is talking about focusing on racial equity in unemployment, and they might you try to figure out a way to use monetary policy to lower the spread between white unemployment and, and African-American unemployment. And then some uh, economists got out there and said, well, actually, we had that. We had it in 2019. December 2019, the spread was maybe 100 basis points between white and black unemployment. We had it because of the policies of the, of the Trump administration. We didn't have it because of government intervention. I'm sorry. That's, that's way too long, and I apologize. I get off my, uh, well, my soapbox. Well, it's, it's music to my ears, uh, Mick, because anytime you can you know, reflect upon Jack Kemp and supply-side economics, it makes me a happy man. Uh, but arguably one of the missed opportunities that leads right into what you were saying is uh, of the Trump administration was uh, infrastructure. I mean, talk about a time who who uh, really had an opportunity there, but do, maybe focused a little bit on energy since that seems to be a, a big issue right now. I mean, as you said, no good uh, uh, crisis uh, uh, misses an opportunity. And, and do we need a Marshall Plan for energy infrastructure in America as a p- component of our growth plan? Uh, coming into the future. Uh, I think the Texas situation has really showcased uh, some some lack of resourcefulness here. Yeah, I, I don't know enough about why Texas is, is, is suffering for what it is. If, is there something structural there? So I don't want to speak to Texas because I try really hard not to talk about things I don't know that much about. I know I fail in that miserably from time to time. Um, <laughs> but uh, do we need a Marshall Plan? No, we don't. The energy was never cheaper than it was you know, 18 months ago. Um, because we had the right policies. You don't have to have the government come in and say, okay, yes, you get some money and you get some money and you don't get any money and expect that to get anything except making people who are politically connected rich. I don't know why um, we haven't learned that lesson with so many opportunities to, to have seen it during our lifetimes. So no, I, I, I think we continue to do what, we, what we've done before. We've got some you know, you put out some common sense environmental policies. That's great. You, know, you let innovation flourish. Uh, keep in mind, one of the reasons that um, electric vehicles have done so well in, in a, is that it's relatively, relatively unregulated. It, 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 it's allowed. We've allowed innovation in that industry. One of the reasons fracking did so well was that it was relatively um, unregulated at, at the outset. So uh, I, there's a formula here, and none of the formulas point you towards, oh, my goodness, we need a Marshall Plan to do this. Go back to infrastructure for a second. I'll tell you, i sorry, I forgot about that, which is this. Listen, we all, we all want more roads. We all want better bridges. We want better airports. I get all that, okay? It's a lousy stimulus program. Uh, it takes way too long. The reason we could not get a stimulus package passed under the Trump administration was that one of the things we insisted on was clearing the decks of a lot of the regulatory burden for building a road, okay? Uh, it doesn't take four years to build a bridge. It takes maybe six months, ten months. Not a big bridge, but an ordinary bridge, say, across a freeway, okay? It takes you a couple months to build that. But when you at layer on top of that uh, actual construction time, all of the permit uh, permitting time and environmental regulations and all of the things that government makes them do, it, it takes a lot longer to get those things built. For that reason, it's a lousy stimulus because you want stimulus to be quick. You want money to flow out of the government coffers and get into the economy. You can't do that with infrastructure. So the Democrats are never going to change the environmental restrictions. They made that clear to us. It's why we could not pass an an infrastructure bill uh, under the Trump administration. And my guess is that's not going to change. So, yes, the Democrats will say we need infrastructure as part of a stimulus program. But, again, that's just 
the not letting a crisis go to waste. Mick, uh, I'm going to ask you to help me out for my my uh, my reporting prep for my for my job on the Hill tomorrow because Robin Hood is testifying. Robin Hood CEO Vlad Tenev is going to be uh, appearing before your old home, the House Financial Services Committee. He says, quote, any allegation, this is according to the testimony just released in the last couple of hours, any allegation that Robinhood acted to help hedge funds or other special interests to the detriment of our customers is absolutely false and market-distorting rhetoric. Trading limits we put in place on GameStop and other stocks were necessary to allow us to continue to meet the clearinghouse deposit requirements. All right, you just started a hedge fund. What do you make of this GameStop Robin Hood issue? Yeah, I think, by the way, um, that everything he just said is absolutely true. Um, and it's not going to help him a bit. Um, keep in mind, <laughs> I, I have been in those chairs, uh, in those hearings. I've been on both sides of the equations, right? I've been asking yep. the questions, and then I have been in the hot seat uh, getting my teeth kicked in for six hours by Elizabeth Warren. Um, <laughs> this, is not, this is not about facts tomorrow. Um, the facts are on, are on everything I've been able to see, and I've done a little bit of research on it. All of the facts seem to be on Robin Hood's side. Um, in fact, if they wanted to take the next step, that's a good statement. The next step is we were only doing what Dodd-Frank made us do. Okay, that, that's that, that that's actually true. They, the, the, everything I think you just read is is 100 percent accurate. Whether or not you can convey that in a way that members of Congress and just as importantly the public understand is going to be really really hard. More importantly, let me I interrupt here. Let me interrupt because yeah. I want to push you on this. What do you mean? Dive into the weeds. This is the this is the uh, the piece of real estate to do it. Dive into the weeds here. What do you mean, Dodd Frank caused or yeah, elaborate? Yeah, I think the DT the DTCC stuff is 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 some of the capital requirements were changed in Dodd Frank, and they've just they following they were following the rules. DTCC did exactly what they were supposed to do. Robinhood did exactly what they're supposed to do. They're following the regulatory regime that the federal government created in order to protect the integrity of the markets. One of the reasons they had to restrict trading was because if they didn't, they had a chance that their system might collapse. And that's what Dodd-Frank and the regulatory system is designed, supposedly, to prevent, which is structural or systemic risks to the system. Okay? So my understanding of, of this is that it worked exactly the way it's supposed to, to work. Somehow, Robin Hood um, did something that they were absolutely required to do, they had very little discretion in, if any, and they managed to, to upset both um, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and Jeff Duncan. For those of you who are listening who don't know who Jeff Duncan is, Jeff Duncan is as far to the right, probably as AOC is to the left. He's a friend of mine from South Carolina and is about as right-wing conservative as you can possibly get. And he wrote a letter excoriating Robin Hood for what they did uh, during, during, the, uh, during the, the, uh, the issues they had a couple weeks back. So there's not a lot of bipartisanship right now in Washington, guys. Being against Robin Hood is one of them, um, and I'm really looking forward to watching the hearing tomorrow. It should make for some good uh, good drama. Go ahead, Rick. I'm oh, sorry. I, sorry to, I, it's sorry. all right. Uh, hey, Mick, I wanted to follow up on that a little bit because obviously this is going to be quite a story tomorrow, and this is your backyard. Um, how, how do you think the, 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 the different agencies that are looking into this, DOG, DOJ, CFTC, uh, there are a lot of different organizations uh, – Kevin does a much better job of, of throwing out all these acronyms than I'm ever going to do. Uh, but is there any fire there? I mean, you've looked into it a little bit. Um, it, if, if it's not Robin Hood, and I think your case is exactly right, well made, 
then what is it? Is there anything other than just the markets corrected themselves at a time when there were a lot of exposed positions and, um, and it's time to move on? Or is it time for some uh, different regulatory formats? I mean, and quickly, mind, we what, got like 30 seconds. Go ahead, Nick. 30 seconds. What are the rules? The rules are designed to, to have people, you know, uh, distort the markets, oftentimes with illegal or false information. I just don't, I did not see that happening here. We have short squeezes all the time. Has it been different now because it's sort of this retail short squeeze as opposed to large institutional players? Yes. Um, but at, the, at its heart, this seems to be a market functioning properly. And what you saw is a traditional short squeeze just through sort of different, uh, different non-traditional means. Um, but uh, again, I, I, we just got a, a couple seconds left. It's going to be fun. I, Kevin, good luck tomorrow. Um, Thank too you. Bad it's not li- too bad it's not live in person because that would be great theater. If anything, oh, I'm going please, anyway. Uh, yeah, I'm going anyway. Glad, Ten of tomorrow. It's going to be the fact he can do this virtually. It doesn't have to be in the hearing. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll have to leave it there, Mick. I'll catch up with you later. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on. That's Mick Mulvaney. He, of course, is many things, and also uh, President Trump's former chief of staff. Uh, February is Black History Month, and Bloomberg Radio is celebrating pivotal moments in the U.S. Black history each day. Here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in Black history in 1891, Albert Richardson patented the butter churn. Up until then, anyone who wanted butter had to make it by hand in a bowl. But Richardson's invention would eventually make it easier to make butter and forever change the food industry. Throughout his life, Richardson had a habit of seeing a problem and then inventing a solution. One such problem he saw was the way dead people were buried. At the time, it was in shallow graves or lowering caskets with ropes into a deeper hole. And this required several people to work in unison, which wasn't always possible, and it could result in damaging the casket. So in 1894, Richardson patented the casket lowering device, and it's used in all cemeteries today. Richardson also invented the home fastener, an insect destroyer, and an improved design of the bottle. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. All right, that does it for us. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Robin Hood, Robin Hood Day tomorrow. This is Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.